This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. A new Ipsos poll says that the NDP have overtaken the Liberals into second place. To talk more about all of this, Christo Avalis is with us, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council, postdoctoral fellow in history at the University of Toronto, and is with us now. Christo, thanks so much for taking the time. We appreciate this. Thanks for having me. So, Christo, what are your thoughts here? Uh, we're seeing the NDP starting to pick up steam. Why do you think that is? Well, there's a, you know, there's a few reasons. I think, you know, the NDP, um, whereas in 2014 they maybe didn't run on a kind of traditional NDP platform, the NDP is being kind of true to what they are. They're running on a progressive platform that looks to help people who need the most help in terms of, you know, getting access to basic services. They have labor reforms in there. They're kind of doing what they what they what a lot of people expected the NDP to do, even if they don't always agree with the NDP. And I think just as importantly, you know, there's a lot of discontent with both Kathleen Wynne, especially Kathleen Wynne, but also still with Doug Ford. And finally, Andrea Horwath as an individual is very popular. Um, and I think a lot of people are starting to, to pay attention to her. And I think the reality is, is that whereas the media was ignoring the NDP before the election, now I think they, they, they can't really ignore her anymore. And now she's getting a lot more play. How much did the debate help this, Christo? I think it helped quite a bit. I think both the, uh, the, the debate on City TV uh, last week certainly helped. I think Andrea came off as well-prepared, and she came off as less, uh, I guess, less combative. She was still combative, of course. She was strong, but she didn't come off as bickering like Ford and Wynn kind of appeared to be doing to one another. And in, even also in the um, less televised, less, uh, less covered, of course, the Perry Sound uh, Northern Ontario debate that happened er, uh, earlier this or, or last week, where uh, uh, Andrea Horwath, there was a great picture of her at the podium without any notes, and Ford and Wynn had their notes sprawled across the across the podium, showing that she really understood her platform and wasn't going to speak, uh, you know, from cue cards. She was going to speak from from a, a kind of general mastery of of what she's running on. And I think those two images have kind of given her a kind of authenticity for a lot of voters who maybe didn't know much about her. Uh, if Ontarians are tired of wind and the high hydro prices, whatever they can't afford, or what does the NDP offer that the liberal that the liberals have not? Uh, because the NDP is basically more win, more liberals, more taxes. Well, not necessarily. Certainly, certainly, maybe more taxes, but less deficit, and I think that's important. In Ontario, we hear a lot of talk about fiscal responsibility, but a dollar. Uh, raised in taxes or a dollar uh, in tax cuts or a dollar in tax cuts uh, raises the deficit just as much as a dollar increased in social programs. And in a sense, Andrea Horwath is the only one talking about real ways in in a costed platform to increase Ontario's revenue stream. Uh, You know, Kathleen Wynne doesn't have a platform costed and neither does Doug Ford. We don't know what their plans are, frankly. Andrea Horwath is saying look, yes, we're going to increase spending, but over the next five years, our deficits will be lower than the Liberals because we're the only party looking to raise taxes on, taxes on those who can afford to pay. So I think it's actually a distinct program from the Liberals. People may disagree with the program, but it's certainly a discontinuance, I think, from Kathleen Wynne. And on issues like hydro, really, Doug Ford supports Kathleen Wynne's hydro plan, whereas um, Andrea Horwath offers something different. Again, people might disagree with the plan, but it's a departure, whereas Ford is a continuance on hydro. Is the fear of Doug Ford to Ontarians greater than the fear of Andrea Horvath raising taxes and giving us more of what the Liberals have? 
Yes, I would say so. I would certainly say that there's not really a fear of Kathleen Wynne. I say there's a fear of, or sorry, a fear of Andrew Horat. There definitely is a fear of Kathleen Wynne, and there's a strong fear of Doug Ford. But there's also a lot of people that really like Doug Ford, and I think that's going to be the question. Do enough of the people who do not like Doug Ford, which includes pretty much every liberal and NDP and Green member, and frankly a good chunk of conservatives, are they enough to coordinate votes to get to the NDP, or will Ford still win because he's able to, say, capture 30% of the population that really likes him and another, say, 8 to 10% that, 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 that like him well enough that they can give him the government he needs? That's the question. I don't see people, people fearing uh, Andrea Horwath right now. I think, again, she's, a, she's immensely popular. What about um, fearing the NDP and fearing raising taxes? Like, it seems we've got a personality conflict versus policy well, so well, in other well, words reality, well the reality is, is Ontario like people don't, has people, the lowest per capita spending on social programs in the entire country Ontario frankly has a revenue problem and Ontario is mm. wealthy we have incredibly wealthy well many have said problems. we don't have a revenue problem we've got a spending problem no see I would disagree with that I think Ontario is an incredibly wealthy province you just noted that we have the young people fleeing the cities because people are making millions on homes that are appreciating through value we have incredible wealth in this province and frankly, I don't think it's unreasonable. Well, wait a sec. They're leaving because they can't afford it. Yes. Be, well, yes, they're leaving because they can't afford it. But the, the, this province is getting richer and richer. The GDP per capita has never been higher. The wealth in this province has never been more concentrated. So what, has the, so what have the Liberals done with all this money then, Christo? The Liberal, well, the, the, again, the reality is that on program spending, the, the, the money hasn't been there, and the Liberals have mismanaged this province. They've mismanaged it through privatization. They've mismanaged it through subsidizing businesses rather than investing in social programs. They've mismanaged, mismanaged it through socializing uh, risk and, private, uh, and privatizing profits through public-private partnerships, you know, giving corporations money to, 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 to kind of slowly bleed the public. And I think it's more an indictment of the Liberals' you know, pro-privatization uh, agenda than it is actually the Liberals spending too much money on social programs. Because again, and I can't stress this enough, Ontario spends the least per capita in this country on social spending. I, I don't, I don't is I, the wealthiest province in the country in terms of its total wealth. It's, a, it's an extremely wealthy province in an extremely wealthy country. I don't, we don't think, have a spending problem. I, I don't think Ontarians have a problem spending on social uh, uh, programs. I, I think they have problems spending things on hydro plans that, that don't work and that keep punting things, finances okay. down the road. Well, I, I, I don't think that, I don't, let, hang on a sec, hang on a sec, Christo. I, I don't think Ontarians have an issue uh, taking care of each other, whether it's the environment or whatever. I think what it comes down to is they just don't trust these people with their money anymore. And I'm not sure that Andrea Horvath's plan is any more fiscally responsible other than the answer is to raise new taxes. But, but certainly, certainly there, there's a call to raise new taxes, and I think that's important. But the reality is, is that, look, Kathleen Wynne is done. I think we can both agree on that. Yeah. You know, the polls show Ipsos poll today, 35 NDP, four to about 40, uh, and the wind's down in the low 20s. And if you look at the CBC poll tracker today, it projects the Liberals winning two seats. The Liberals are done at this point. It's a change election. And we have Andrea Horwath with a plan. Maybe people don't agree with the plan. Ford has no plan. He has promised nothing in terms of a cost. Let me ask you this. Is it perhaps the change in attitude 
that people that, that is attracting attracting people to Ford. Again, I, I go back to yeah. I, I go back to what happened in the United States and the Democrats just pointing fingers at Trump. And I'm not endorsing Trump. I I, mm-hmm. I, I put him through the the ringer whenever I talk to him, talk about him on this show. But the Democrats spent so much time on labeling him as a big bad meanie, a bully, a this, a that, the other, that they completely forgot. And, and, and have absolutely no recollection of still why people would rather have him than her. And I, I'm not sure that the liberals or the Democrats, you know, what they're using is ammo against Ford as opposed to understanding how a leader like Ford even got to where he is. Does that make, does that make sense? That. No, you're right. And I think the liberal party is Hillary Clinton. And if, 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 if Ford is Trump, then... Then Andrea Horwath is Bernie Sanders, and, and I'm of the camp that Bernie Sanders would have beaten Donald Trump because the difference is, is one is Andrea, in a similar manner to Ford, speaks to regular people. She's mm-hmm. not a downtown Toronto elite. In fact, Ford's the, the millionaire heir from Toronto. Andrea's the working class girl from Hamilton. But Well, that's just simply, the, yeah, but let's be yeah. honest here. Let's be honest when we, when we split hairs like this, Christo. Yeah. It's because Andrea spent her whole life in politics. Doug Ford's been a businessman. So, you know, again, why do we, why do we hate people who are successful? Well, no, we'll see, Andrea wasn't, she didn't spend her, she spent a long time in politics, but Andrea has experience working with some of the most vulnerable people in the province, you know, just because, you know, she has uh, experience working um, to help support people. Yeah, but she's been a politician for a long time. I mean, longer than she I has, can remember. She yeah. has, no, yeah. you're right. But what I will say, what I will say in this particular instance is that Andrea isn't so much attacking Ford's personality. You know, the liberals are focusing on, well, Ford is, he's this dangerous Trump-like character. What Andrea Horwath is saying, what the NDP is saying, is more that we disagree with Ford's economic vision for the province. Mm -hmm. And that's very much how the Democrats should have attacked Trump. You're right, they spent too much time talking about Trump's deplorable, Trump's unprepared, Trump just isn't qualified, he isn't like the proper politician. And you're right, the the people of America, or at least 48% of the the, the you know uh, uh, of the voters rejected that notion and put Trump in the White House. Where I think Bernie Sanders' message, which again he's the most popular politician in America, um, is that Trump was wrong not because of his mannerisms or because he you know uh, looked funny sometimes or because his words didn't always sound as eloquent as Barack Obama's, but because his policies were wrong. And I think Andrea Horwath is gaining momentum attacking Ford on the message and less for the man. Because you're right, people don't like when Ford is attacked as a person. There's a lot of, of relating to Ford, and there's a, a sense, in a sense, sympathy to Ford when people attack him for being, for being uncouth. And, being and, and let me ask you another question, Christo. Are we spending, and, and you know, plans, numbers, they got to be there. You got to show fiscal responsibility. You got to have a plan. It's got to be costed out when you're doing these things. That being said, all of this stuff that is costed out prior to an election, all goes out the window the, the second that the uh, ruling party is turfed and whoever the new party is that comes in. Especially, I'm, I'm suggesting that will especially happen with the Kathleen Wynne Liberals considering their creative accounting and the financial accountability officer and the auditor general are questioning their numbers. So whether it's Andrea Horvath or Doug Ford that gets in there, uh, after it's all over, they're going to go, oh my God, look at this. So well, how, how important, and again, we keep going back to 
these costed programs. It's like, you know, I'm listening to Bill Kelly's show earlier on today, and he's talking about how Ford's going to fire the $6 million man, and if he fires the $6 million man, it's going to cost us $12 million to do it. It's not going to really lower rates. And all of that is absolutely true. But at the end of the day, I think what's attracting people to Ford is his attitude. At least he's going to do something. At least he's moving in that direction as opposed to the opposite direction. And again, it's those directions, it's those attitudes, I think, that the election's going to be fought on. And, and as popular and as, and as nice as Andrea Horvath is, at the end of the day, her, num- her party does not provide those numbers. So uh, I, I guess an, another question onto that would be, what is the Alberta NDP doing differently than the Ontario NDP? Because they seem to be more phys- fiscally involved, and yet that doesn't work for the Ontario NDP. How come? Well, you know, the reality is is that the, the, the Alberta NDP is in a different context with a different province. It's yeah. difficult to make comparisons, of course. Uh, but I've often Alberta, said if Rachel Notley was running here with her party, the NDP would stand a lot better chance. Although you're the you're the expert here, when the NDP in Ontario try to do that, then it doesn't work for them. They don't want to. And nobody who, who's in Ontario who's an NDP supporter wants to hear about fiscal responsibility or numbers. This province is a more left leaning province uh, generally. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. reality is that the the NDP understands that in Alberta, they're certainly not a right wing party. They've made really important labor reforms. They've you know uh, they've raised taxes in, in certain areas. They've um, invested in social programs, and, and I think that's, you know, they're an NDP government. But in, I think in Ontario, there's a realization that, that there's, there's a large proportion of the voters that want change, and that change, for some people, is going to come maybe from Ford, maybe through a, 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 a right-wing populism um, that's predicated on, you know, taking on the elites. But Andrea Horwath is also proposing a program of change. And again, you know, Ford has certainly held his own so far. His party hasn't really bled any support. But Andrea Horwath has risen in some polls 15% in a couple of weeks. That kind of momentum is indicating that while Ford certainly isn't losing the plot yet, he actually hasn't been able to kind of get back to where Patrick Brown or the, the PCs were polling when they had no leader. So Ford is, you know, having a difficult time there. And I would be skeptical of the fact that this is a guaranteed win here. And I would say that, that there's, a, there's an appetite for a social democratic program in Ontario. We have the money to do it. We have the ability to do it. We're a wealthy province. If Tommy Douglas could create Medicare in a rural province in Saskatchewan in the 1950s, then in Ontario we can have programs around Medicare and pharmacare and childcare and dental care. And we can do that. And I don't think there's any financial limitation there. Now, you're right in saying that a lot of people really like Doug Ford's demeanor, his approach to politics. It's costing us but too much money to live in this province. That's what, that's what I'm hearing, Christo. It's costing us too much. We can't afford win anymore. That's what I'm hearing. We can't, we can't afford, afford, we can't afford win, so then how can we afford the NDP? Uh, although you say more fiscal responsibility. The NDP is running smaller deficits, yeah. and they're making greater social investments. And again, people might disagree with that, but again, the reality is, is Ontario doesn't spend a whole lot of money on its social programs, and the reality is that if we have high costs of living, some of those things are unrelated to government. Doug Ford, for instance, wants to de, uh, to drop rent controls. You know, the government... No, he just, said, he, just, he just said a thing today, he's not touching rent controls. Oh, so, well, see, that, see, that's interesting, because again, Mr. Ford has the issue where there's no platform, so he's for one thing now, and then another thing then, and and I think for a lot of people, that, that kind of seat-by-the-pants politics is what they love about Ford. The question is, will that hold? My concern is that cost of living is not simply related, related to taxes. 
but it's also related to things like wages. It's also related to things like housing. It's also related to things like uh, availability of good public transit. And I don't know if, you know, a simple we're going to cut taxes mentality will actually increase affordability for most Ontarians. I'm Christo, skeptical of that. Christo Avalis has been with us, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council, postdoctoral fellow in history at the University of Toronto. Christo, always a pleasure. Thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Uh, according to data from StatsCan, millennials are leaving the big cities. The data shows that while the numbers for pe- of people leaving the cities is accelerating, the biggest growth is from millennials. To talk more about this, Philip Golfi is with his realtor with Remax Escarpment. He's with us now. Philip, do you see this? Are you seeing the millennials saying, I'm out, Toronto, uh, Vancouver, any large city like that? Uh, I'm not interested anymore. <laughs> First, uh, Scott, thanks for having me on the show. We see this every single day. We see millennials, um, you know, the ages 20 to 30, they've got their experience in Toronto. They've experienced the lifestyle of Toronto. They're, they're, they're done with that city buzz, that city hustle, and they're, they're, they're leaving the city. They're getting out of the city. They're ready to start a family, um, and, and they're, they're hitting up the suburbs. But what's, what's most interesting is that the suburbs are, are starting to offer a lot of the stuff that, that Toronto has been offering for a while. Um, the, the suburbs are starting to become way more attractive. Um, the city centers are becoming way more livable. Um, we see in, in, in Hamilton with our LRT, the transportation systems are becoming, you know, a lot more feasible. That will attract those people that, that rely on those specific systems on an everyday life to be able to attract them to, to the suburb cities. So it's happening all the time. We, we, we have a ton of, um, you know, people that, that are renting in the GTA that, that, you know, where home ownership is, is important to them. Um, maybe they've been kicked out by their landlord and they've had bad experiences with their landlords that they're, you know, they're ready for a home ownership. Um, they're not necessarily changing their jobs um, as per se. They'll still, you know, they would rather have the lifestyle of a home ownership and be a homeowner and commute into the city. Um, so we still see a lot of people that, that will move out of the city, keep their same job. And, uh, and start commuting in on a, on a day-to-day basis. This is obviously great news for Hamilton. Oh, it's, it's fantastic news for Hamilton. Um, Hamilton's made, it, made itself so attractive to, to the young millennial um, with the arts, the culture, the restaurants, the nightlife. Um, those three combined or those four combined make it, you know, anybody coming from that, you know, that, that enjoys that channel lifestyle, enjoys going out for nice dinners, enjoys, you know, the entertainment um, of, of a city, Hamilton's and, and, and I think there's there's a lot more coming um, where the where the, the city of Hamilton is, is doing its job. And then even with the you know, with the LRT, it's going to be interesting to see what happens with the LRT. But a lot of people are going to depend on that. And that's going to you know, that's going to make it really attractive for people to come down. We have people that call us every single day and say we want to be on that main corridor where that LRT is pro- proposed. We want to live within a, a, a three or four minute walk to that LRT. Hmm. Um, and, and, and we're setting them up on, uh, you know, notifying them of active listings that are coming on the market that, that are in that LRT corridor. So what can Hamilton learn from this? In terms of... Yeah, terms I mean, the millennials are leaving the large cities. What can Hamilton learn from mistakes perhaps those cities have made? I think, I think the biggest mistakes the cities have made is, is they haven't made their corporations attractive enough to stay. I think the corporations are taking off on, on the big... On the on the big cities, I, I think it's it's become way too expensive. 
in terms of home ownership. And I think the corporations are seeing that that instead of you know necessarily having a big head office right downtown in a in a city center, maybe they're you know they'll they'll look towards the suburb cities and know that the millennials will come. Um, and then and then most importantly, it's 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 protecting the the housing market, right? It's it's ensuring that there's affordable housing for for a young um, you know a, a young professional that just graduated university or just graduated college and making home ownership affordable to them. Philip Golfi has been with us, realtor with Remax Escarpment. Philip, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Say hi to your dad. I will for sure. Take care. All right, take care. Uh, let's bring in Michael Marini, Economic Development, City of Hamilton. He is with us now. Uh, here's the headline, Michael. Millennials leaving Toronto, Vancouver, Stats Canada shows that in, a, in like an, an unbelievable rate. Right. Uh, as as Marini sitting here with a great big smile on his face. What are your thoughts when you hear this? Well, it's, it's not uh, any great news to us uh we've seen it for the last 10 years i've been on your show for like a great decade now yeah. right talking about this and yeah absolutely we're seeing young people leaving major uh employment centers like toronto uh coming to hamilton it's the uh the affordable um quality of life that that, that you can have here uh the home prices you can you can still attain um, and is it just affordability, though? No, because there's there's so many other municipalities uh, surrounding us, and they have affordable housing as well. I think it, it comes down to uh, the employment opportunities as well and, and, and a vibe. And I think it really comes down to that mm, vibe. That, yeah, I, I would agree with that, too, because it's, it's certainly there's a vibe there that wasn't there 10 years ago. Right. Uh, are you, are, why are they leaving? Is, if, it's, if it's not just housing prices, why, why are they leaving? Uh, I think one big uh, one big reason is um, their family commitments. Mm. You know, a lot of these young people now have have had their exciting times in the big city yeah. once once they graduate post secondary, <laughs> and then when they get in their late twenties, early thirties, you know they they meet that uh, that right someone, they settle down, mm. and then they start to think about having a family. And when you look at, uh, in particular, a city like Toronto, a lot of them who have who have moved here have told us, look, we want a backyard, we want to have. Uh, expansive parks. We want uh, somewhere where we can can breathe. Uh, so, so, so does that mean families don't live in cities? They do. They do live in cities, but I think the ones that are moving to Hamilton in particular mm-hmm. have a have a um, you know a mindset that they want a particular style of home. They right. don't necessarily want to live in a condo with yeah. three other three, three children and, and mm-hmm. live in a, in a small condo. They want the uh, the room uh, that they can put their family mm-hmm. in uh, that that's affordable and, and it's it functional so how do you make cities more attractive more attractive to families because as you said you know it, it's, it happens to be young urban professional whatever mm-hmm. all that sort of stuff what how do you keep them there i think the, the big part is jobs yeah uh, you got to create the jobs here and i think what we're seeing now is um toronto is an international city there's mm-hmm. no denying that yeah Amazon, uh, for example, was looking at where to to locate. And you look at the final twenty, uh, the finalists mm. in the list. They're major cities. Yeah, yeah. So you know the 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 major corporations. We'd love to have them here in Hamilton, but I think their first look is going to be in Toronto for those major corporations. But from a from a satellite office perspective, from a regional office perspective, there's no reason why they can't be in Hamilton. So if mm. Amazon said we're going to Toronto tomorrow. But we wanted to have a branch in Hamilton. I think that's that's totally doable, and I think uh, scalable um, uh, development is important as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not knocking down 
old buildings uh, in our downtown in particular. We want to have an eight-story limit. Now we're starting to increase a little bit, but not exceeding the height of the, yeah. the Niagara Escarpment. Uh, so you, you want to have something that's scalable. You want to have employment opportunities that meet the needs of the uh, the local economy, and that's why we have a sector-specific uh, strategy and how we develop our economy to say, look, these are the good, these are the things we're good at. Here's where we're going to attract jobs, and that, and we're seeing that grow now, and, and mm. this big push on uh, innovation, commercialization, and you know, artificial intelligence, and the next generation of tech jobs. We're starting to build that now, and we have been in the last decade or so. Uh, but we're not just saying it's all going to be about uh, app development, the next Facebook. Right. That is part of it, but it's more about, hey, we, we're really good at life sciences. So we're going to, the next generation of healthcare, we're really good at advanced manufacturing. What's the next generation of uh, AI in the manufacturing process? Uh, so we have to really find our niche and, and go after that. Yeah, and we always talk about smart cities, but we 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 have seemed to focus in the last ten years on cramming as many people into those cities as we possibly can. Whereas what you're talking about, how do we build these smart cities outside of these major centers? And and an example, I'm driving up uh, through Peterborough on the weekend last weekend, and I see uh, an industrial building. It's got the Rolls Royce logo on the side and I'm thinking my goodness Rolls Royce is in Peterborough but obviously the same sort of idea is business is coming to Hamilton they feel there's a need there there's a workforce there that they they can obviously tap into talk about congestion and just being crowded so we're one of the least congested cities in comparison in 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 this part of Ontario so they did an index um, and that's actually was part of our Amazon bid we looked into the the stats um, so from a congestion standpoint, you're not stuck in traffic like you are in a major city like Toronto. Uh, the transportation systems, you know, you know, there, there's... Uh, It'll keep tenu- up to the growth. Yeah. Hopefully. Th- so there's a strategy in place from uh, the HSR, from City Council, from our, our whole transit strategy. Uh, LRT, the last, uh, last guest was just mentioning the LRT line. Mm-hmm. So that's still moving forward. Uh, so you're trying to move people uh, east-west. Um, and then just the, the highway system. So you have the the go trains that are running, but the highway system itself, if you choose to use a vehicle every day, um, then you have efficient transportation systems. So people do not want to be caught in congestion. Um, and I think Hamilton has a, has a great system here in terms of moving people and goods. Are you concerned, you talked about uh, high rises in the downtown core and going above the escarpment, which is a great rule of thumb when you think about it. Uh, how concerned are you that this growth is happening too fast uh, can we be reassured that this is being managed so when we come out of the end of this or as it continues we don't end up like toronto yeah so they've been working on a i think in mm. 2001 they started on the downtown secondary plan which kind of laid out here's how we're going to grow over the next so many years um and then they just came back to council last month to uh, to talk about the improvements on that plan and there is some some very strict guidelines in place uh, there's a very um, general understanding and embrace of what uh, Hamilton planners are trying to do in terms of managing growth. We understand that the high rises are coming. They're going to be built uh, more. Uh, and we're seeing that now on the landscape of the downtown. But there still is a very strong commitment to trying to keep things scalable and trying to retain the character of the buildings. And you'll see that down at the waterfront in particular. Uh, so once the, um, the successful developer is chosen, uh, it's always been long said to the community and to the media. It's been shared publicly that, you know, there are height limits on those yeah. buildings at the, at the waterfront. You're not going to have 
50-story yeah. glass and steel structures that block your view of the water. So mm. we have those those secondary plans in place, and we're going to hold to them. Michael Marini has been with us, City of Hamilton Economic Development. Uh, this topic, Millennials Leaving Toronto and Vancouver, says Stats Canada. Michael, as always, exciting times. Thanks for coming in. We appreciate this. Thank you very much. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Let's uh, bring in John Iveson uh, from the National Post. His latest column, if self-confessed ISIL killer is not held accountable, who will be? This is an article, frightening article, uh, talking about people who come back to this country who have been abroad and are involved in these terrorist operations. What do we do when they get back here? Let's bring in John Iveson from the National Post. He's with us now. John, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. No problem, Scott. Talk about the podcast that you viewed or listened to. Listen to this. This is the New York Times. uh, It's called Caliphate. It's a podcast. And it features a guy who's a Canadian and he's a returning ISIL fighter. And he was pretty graphic about his experience when he was in Syria, um, his nom de guerre, so that this is not his real name, but he goes by Abu Hazafi al-Kanadi, and, um, he, but he sounded like uh, your neighbors or your listeners, um, but he was talking about how being taught how to behead people. You had to know how to slice a head off, he, was, he said, and then he took part in a, a group execution where he shot a middle-aged Muslim man in the back of the head. He said, it's justified, you're not going to be held accountable, which is what he told himself. And then another occasion, he took part in a community killing where he stabbed a drug dealer in the heart. Um, and he said he had to stab him multiple times. After that, he said he felt disgusted. He wanted to return back to Canada. So he escaped to Turkey and then to his grandparents' home in Pakistan. Then he made his way back to Canada and he told immigration authorities at the airport that he'd spent 10 months at university in Pakistan. And the quote was, I said it in a way so that it didn't seem I was lying. So I guess what you've got after all of that is a killer on the loose, a self-confessed killer in Canada's biggest city. So what is the rule of thumb for these people returning home? I mean, are there any red flags sent up? Do they have to meet with anybody? What happens when someone like this returns to Canadian soil? Well, this is, this is Canada is very different. I mean, if you look at what has been happening, uh, the UK... Uh, Defence Minister uh, said a dead terrorist can't cause any harm in Britain. It was kind of controversial. It caused debate, but opinion polls suggest 35% of Britons agreed with them. Jihadis should be treated like any enemy combatants and made to be legitimate targets. Um, another 42% said they should be stripped of citizenship, uh, which has happened. And only about 10%, 11%, said they should be brought home to face sentence, sentencing and re- rehabilitation. That same scenario is happening in France, in the US, but not in Canada, because the charter changes everything. And uh, my former colleague, Stu Bell, Stuart Bell at uh, Global, he got his hands on some documents that suggest exactly what happens. And our options are limited. I mean, and the RCMP and CSIS admit their options are limited. We are obliged to facilitate the return of these fighters to Canada. And uh, because they're Canadian. Because they're Canadian, and that's that's the ch- they have charter rights and they're protected, and uh, we know that or the government says around 60 ex- extremists have been returned. Um, another academic says no more than 10, but whatever the number. Um, how do we know what the prosec- number is, and how well, do we, we know we, if it's we, accurate? 
Well, we, we can't because we have one here who has admitted he lied to get through customs and he's not recorded in that 60. So, so it, you know, the number could be any number. We, we know that it only takes one or maybe two people to cause a, a terrorist incident. And we also know that only two prosecutions have been leveled to date. And, uh, and this guy is not one of them. And yet, you know, whether it's the confession that he cheated his way through immigration or that he killed people, uh, whether that stands up in court is another matter. But, but you know, there's a, an individual here that reporters have spoken to, so people know how to find him, and he's not being prosecuted. Uh, Ralph Goodell, public safety minister, says he couldn't talk about any of this and said the RCMP and the Canadian Security Intelligence Service are, quote, taking all the necessary steps to ensure that justice is enforced. Is that just a way of not answering the question? Well, it may well be that it turns out that they are collect, uh, making a case against this individual. But it's, uh, you know... The, how, the track, how long has he been here now? Well, the, the, I don't know that. I don't know that. Uh, the, the track record to date is not great, though. And part of the problem is because the intelligence agencies are wary about revealing sources of information. Sometimes it's partners abroad, uh, and they're, they're obliged not to reveal that information. But, but many other times, it's just because they don't want that information used in court, and it might prejudice further operations. The other thing is that the, the Public Prosecution Service is wary about taking on cases where they can't prove Mm. what happened, because obviously a lot of what happened happened overseas. So even this guy making a self-incriminating statement, I guess there needs to be some corroborating evidence, and obviously that's hard to find. But it seems to me that, that we're, we're not doing a good job at converting uh, intelligence into evidence. And Is that what has to be done here, John? Like when somebody like this that you're talking about in this article uh, comes back, then all of a sudden it's into the courts. We have to see if what he did, he what he said he did, he actually did, because that process could be lengthy and very costly. Well, of course, and, and there's no saying whether he would repeat what he said on tape yeah. in a court of law. You know, I mean, uh, yeah. he's got the, the, the case has got to be proved beyond, beyond reasonable doubt, and if he denies it, then you've got to have some other evidence. But at the same time, other countries are doing a better job than we're doing, and, uh, and, that's, and I, I don't just mean keeping them out of the country, they're definitely doing a better job at that. But even when they're in the country, the prosecution rates in most other countries are higher than here. So there is a problem here, and, um, you know, in part it's a political problem. The, the, the government can't prosecute people, that's the prosecution service, but the government is responsible for the justice system. And, you know, this is a government that says a Canadian is a Canadian is a Canadian, and even after they've been convicted of terrorism and had their... Th- citizenship revoked under the previous government, the, the Liberal government overturned that law. Mm. And, this, and so there are individuals convicted of terrorism who get their citizenship back. That does not seem to me to be the direction in which we should be going. Where is this going? Is this going to resonate? Is this going to have legs? Uh, well, I think, uh, you know, it won't resonate until it really resonates, and, that's, yeah. and it's going to be too late. That's after one of these individuals has come back and committed a terrorist atrocity in this country. John Iveson has been with us, uh, columnist for the National Post. The column is, if self-confessed ISIL killer is not held accountable, who will be? John, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thanks, Scott. Bye. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Just got off the line with John Iveson, National Post columnist. If self-confessed ISIL killers are not held accountable, who will be? Uh, the safety minister says that they cannot, uh, Ralph Goodale says he can't comment 
on uh, investigations that are ongoing. But what happens to these people when they return? What's the process? Uh, let's bring in David Harris in Cigna Strategic Group. He's a terrorism expert. He's with us now. David, thanks for the time. I appreciate it. Oh, a pleasure, Scott. Uh, a troubling uh, piece written by John Iveson of The Post here and, and, and talking about how uh, a self-described uh, ISIS member uh, at one time leaves, comes back to Canada, tells of his experience there. What kind of red flags are raised? What happens when these people return? Well, I guess it may be a red flag if somebody's purported by their own words, to have said they've blown away the back of the head of uh, another human being in a possibly premeditated killing abroad. Um, But, I mean, more generally, you've got all kinds of issues arising. One uh, having to do with the criminal code uh, provisions relating to uh, the attempts, as alleged, to move from Canada to another jurisdiction in order to uh, advance some kind of terrorist activity. There are others uh, bearing on material support to terrorism. There would be uh, basic considerations of, uh, don't mean to sound old-fashioned on this, but how about murder? Um, You know, so as a lawyer, I see, of course, a number of possible criminal code areas. When it comes to downstream matters of managing individuals who may seem to be deeply problematic, such as in the case we've been hearing about, um, but against whom there may be a want of evidence uh, for any number of reasons, including the fact of the chaos in the uh, alleged venue of the crimes, um, then you've clearly got a real problem. Uh, many people, particularly in human rights organizations and industries, have uh, made the point in rather blasé terms that such people can be monitored. Mm. Uh, one can keep an eye on them. But uh, how realistic this is uh, in terms of the available expertise and the enormous amounts of money involved is a real question. You often hear people, and we've heard testimony to this effect, Uh, on multiple occasions before parliamentary committees that it can require 20 to 30 people who are highly specialized to monitor a single individual on a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week basis. Mm. Um, You know, when you start putting costs to that kind of thing and ignoring, indeed, the very fact that it takes an immense amount of efforts, a number of years, to get people to the point where they have the kind of expertise required. You can just see what a, an absolute mess all of this can be. So uh, that's not really a solution. And we've seen as well that some attempts to gain mastery of people through monitoring have themselves been rather signal failures. You'll remember the case of Aaron Driver, who, uh, yeah. according to reports, was on his way to shoot up some uh, public facility when uh, he was intercepted by authorities at the very last minute, quite possibly owing to U.S. intelligence uh, warnings, and uh, blew himself up uh, in the course of uh, a concert with the police. So, you know, that episode, among others, uh, provided some warnings, and it provided another kind of warning. If recollection serves, the Aaron Driver case, I think this was in Cambridge, Ontario, yeah. um, That was an episode where one or two of the more celebrated of apparent uh, uh, counter-radicalization, counter-terrorism experts 
uh, a league of individuals, predominantly including some academics, had uh, asserted, uh, in at least one case, I think in court, that this individual, uh, Mr. Driver, was uh, not a threat or could be sufficiently managed from a threat perspective. Uh, Well, we saw how that came out. Um, There are other questions, too, relating to the levels of adequacy of the expertise of some of the people who do float around in academia and elsewhere uh, when it comes to assessing these things. And I'd recommend to people a serious look at the uh, article by Anthony Fury of the Toronto Sun a few days ago who went into this case. And uh, he expressed some questions about, for example, the Canada Centre for Community Engagement and Prevention of Violence, which, as he puts it, is a division of Public Safety Canada, a federal entity. And uh, as he said, it doles out uh, grants uh, to nonprofits and other individuals and entities. Um, we have to make sure we are confident in whatever science exists with respect to all of this. And now and then, some have been a bit concerned about the prominence of political scientists, say, rather than psychiatrists or others in this sort of enterprise. Uh, Why have we... We're a little bit off track here, um, but why didn't we hear more about the Aaron Driver case? It just... Because he passed away during this, it was silence. We never heard anything more about this. Well, that's right. It was pretty limited. I think there was a, a mea culpa that I actually saw on uh, a national broadcasting uh, outlet uh, on TV where uh, an academic who had uh, put his neck out, so to speak, on this matter before uh, the the uh, death um, essentially, I think, apologized for uh, having inadvertently misled the court. I mean, I guess he was doing his best, but it just underscores how constrained we all are in understanding some of these things. And it's very important to know that this is not by any means off the subject, off topic, because if we are seeing people coming back to Canada, having possibly been involved in, you know, the whole catalog of matters connected to ISIS alone. So here you could be dealing with mass rape, sex slavery, uh, maiming, murder, and so on then you have to know exactly how you intend to deal with these situations. And if you're not equipped by your infrastructure, whether on the hard, uh, sharp security side, or whether according to uh, some counter-radicalization initiatives, then you succeed only in misleading the public and yourself. And governments can have a bit of a temptation, perhaps despite their best intentions, to want to play down some of these issues and threats because they lead to other complicated policy questions. Hmm. Um, And I think I've heard some folks who uh, are very sophisticated in these matters say they're a bit worried that whenever the latest or next outrage occurs, uh, the relevant government, whether it be federal or provincial, maybe even local, uh, may make a show of throwing another few hundred thousand dollars at uh, some kind of uh, counter-radicalization program that may or may not be particularly credible. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.
OPP received some complaints after the Thunder Bay Amber Alert set off phones Ontario-wide. Didn't set off my phone yet. I'm still having issues with that. However, during this uh, show, the the uh, the announcement did come over the radio and uh, and do its job there. What are the parameters for issuing these alerts? How do you decide which ones are provincial and ones are a specific region? Let's bring in Sergeant Carol Dion, OPP spokesperson, in with us now. Carol, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. Well, thanks for having me. So, uh, was it was the Thunder Bay uh, Amber Alert supposed to come to Southern Ontario? The Amber Alert is set to go off provincially. So, um, yeah, so it's distributed province-wide. So, if there's uh, a, a child that's been abducted in Thunder Bay, we're going to get noticed down here. Yes, you are. And uh, what is the advantages to that? Some are saying, why do we need to know what's happening in Thunder Bay? Well, for one, it's not our intent to cause any inconvenience or disruption to um, anyone. However, uh, we'll say we won't apologize for taking any steps necessary to locate an abducted child that's uh, deemed to be in imminent danger. Um, But with technology now and even the time that it can take somebody to travel, uh, it's important for us to get the message as far out and everywhere as we can. We all know that um, those who have cellular device or wireless device, we're not just sitting uh, at home or in our uh, hometown each and every day. We could be just about anywhere. Yeah, good I, point. I mean, I guess you could fo- your phone could be going off as you're driving to Thunder Bay, even though you're from southern Ontario. Exactly. You know, mm. and we could be visiting families, friends from anywhere in the province. Mm. And I may be sitting there at a park one day, and I'm getting this alert, and I'm actually sitting in front or nearby, or I might have seen a child just moments before, mm. and it may not even be in my regular or typical area. Um, so if it means a five-second, ten-second disruption, um, I will take that. I will take that disruption knowing that potentially I can save the life of a child and bring him back safely to um, their caretaker. Good point. Uh, how did this alert work compared to others? There's been issues as we've tested this. How, obviously, this was a real-life scenario. This wasn't a test. Mm-hmm. But how did this work? How did this one work out? Well, we feel it definitely worked um, successfully. The child was apprehended a few mm. hours after uh, the alert was issued. Um, I don't have the information yet how uh, the information came about to the person that located the child, if it was through um, the wireless system, cable, satellite, their radio, or even the TV. There's so many different options that you can get that information now. Um, but it was through the Amber Alert, and the child was um, brought back and is now in safe hands. So when there is an issue, Sergeant, what happens? What's the process? How do one of these get issued? Well, firstly, we need to um, make sure that it meets one of the three criteria. The first one is that we believe that the child under the age of 18 has been abducted. The second part is that we, and when I say we, law enforcement, um, policing agencies, believe the child is in danger. And then that we also need to have descriptive information about one or more of the following. So we need to have descriptors of the child, the abductors, and or the vehicle. And again, to believe that uh, an immediate broadcast alert will help us in locating that child. And I guess, do you know, uh, you were talking about you, didn't, you weren't sure the, uh, of uh, how this situation, uh, this Thunder Bay situation worked out, but was it a result of the Amber Alert that, uh, th- that you successfully located the child? Do we know that yet? 
Yes, we believe that. Yes, uh, but I don't know by which means. Right, right. Yeah. But it was a result of the Amber Alert. That exactly. This, oh, well, there you go right there. Yeah. How much more do we need to talk about? Yeah. Uh, are there more bugs? As you guys are using this, guys and girls are using this, Is there? do you want more out of this? What are the challenges? What, where does it need improving? Well, definitely there's been some um, concerns that some people didn't get. As many concerns as people got it, there's concerns that people didn't get it, right, right. Uh, through their wireless device. Um, we are a facilitator in inputting the information into the system that is managed by Pel- Pelmorex or the um, also known as uh, NAD. Um, so with them, uh, right now what we've been advised is that not all cell phones are compatible or wireless devices are compatible, and that's what they're working on. Um, some have, I believe, something along the line of a 3G, or uh, and this should be an LTE. There's other uh, things, even though if you have an LTE, you may not have updated the latest That's upgrade. the other thing. That's the other thing, too, Sergeant. You've got to have yours updated as well. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right, Sergeant Carol Dion has been with his OPP spokesperson talking about the Thunder Bay Amber Alert, which, uh, of course, uh, went into action yesterday. And the good news is the child was found safe. And at the end, that's what we're trying to do. Sergeant Carol Dion, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. You're welcome. Have a great day. You too. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.